Do you want more energy, better sleep, and better health? Who wouldn't? Get a free Scalar Light no obligation 15-day trial at scalarlight.com. Please note that all information and content on UK Health Radio and our blog are provided by the authors, producers, and companies themselves and is only intended as additional information to your general knowledge and does not substitute professional medical advice or treatment. So please do not delay or disregard any medical advice received due to information gathered on the UK Health Radio. Health Radio, real feel-good radio. Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week we give you the best news, views and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians. The companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's largest talk health radio. My name is Steve Roost and each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the CEOs, leaders and clinicians who are driving the health tech revolution in the UK and beyond. I am a CEO and founder of a health tech company myself and I'm passionate about the people and companies who are changing the world. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to remind everyone, all our regular listeners to follow us on the socials. It's at Health Tech Hour and at UK Health Radio to stay on top of all of the great content that's coming up on the show. My guest today is Hugh Lloyd-Jukes, the CEO of OxyHealth, who have developed a platform called OxyVision, which allows vital signs readings such as pulse, breathing rate, and other key indicators to be measured without needing to contact or come into contact with the patient. It works by having optical sensors installed in the patient's rooms, which monitor continuously, and it's backed by an AI system that can tell clinicians when they need to intervene. Why does contact-free measurement matter? Well, OxyVision is installed in over 40% of mental health trusts in the UK, which has meant that severely ill and vulnerable people are able to get a full night's sleep while also being protected from harming themselves. For For clinicians, it means that they no longer have to go into a patient's room every few hours, all through the day and all through the night, which reduces their stress levels and improves their performance as well. OxyHealth talk about themselves as allowing clinicians to deliver proactive care to some of the most vulnerable people in health and care in the health and care system. And I'm very excited to hear how they do this. So Hugh, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Steve. Thanks for having me on. How are you? What's the mood in the camp like? I kind of ask everyone this question. I know that lockdown's kind of easing, but but what is the mood over there in the camp at OxyHealth like? I, I think it's as it has been, to be honest, Steve. I, I, I... I have a, a confession. My, my son was born the, f- the first week of lockdown, so I wasn't oh, wow. actually available and with the team when we went into lockdown running uh, for COVID <laughs> in the UK um, or overseas. So um, I, for me, it was a seamless transition. Um, but I think that the team, uh, obviously, we, we moved to the remote working or hybrid working because a number of our staff are key workers supporting the NHS yeah. and other clinical services on the front line. And, and so I think we, we really in the UK, Sweden, the US have this hybrid way of working kind of down and the team just stay focused on what do the clinicians and the patients need in terms of bringing the service live and, and keeping it operating for them. And I think we just hold on to that whilst all around us, there's all sorts mm. of uncertainty uh, and that keeps our focus. Good, good. And did you say you were in, the, the, in Sweden as well? Was there a difference between how things were, were there versus the UK in terms of the, the reaction to, to, to things or was it roughly the, the same way? 
Yes, yeah, so we have businesses in the UK, Sweden, and in America, and oh, wow. um, uh, most of our our team um, are, are in the UK. Uh, the America is very early, but Sweden we have a, a substantial team serving Swedish care homes. And um, yeah, there were there were differences in the speed of lockdowns, the nature of lockdowns across Sweden and, and the US. Mm. Uh, I think the response at OxyHealth, we we said we try and be caring, data led, and considered in how we mm. coped with that and stay right. focused on what really matters. And that seems to have helped us ride it out in Europe and in the UK. Great. Well, look, as regular listeners will know, and I know that we talked about in our in our production call before the show, the show is in three parts. So the first part is more of an origins part as to how you came to be on the journey that you're on and ending up at OxyHealth. The middle bit is all about how and what all of the incredible things that OxyHealth is doing, obviously not just in the UK, but Sweden. And I know that you, you, you've started to do some things in the United States, which is very exciting. And then the final piece is what the future holds. And if we've got time, we can kick around some topics of the day that might be connected to what you guys are doing so um let's start with you so how did your journey into the world of work sort of start because i know that you weren't always in health tech or healthcare. yeah well i think well my dad's a my dad's a soldier and so we moved before i was seven i'd lived in five places uh, wow. so i was born in northern ireland and we bounced between the uk to india back out to germany and back classic kind of soldier's child and i, I don't know but i think that one thing i noticed there and you can't help but notice is how different life experiences are and how different we're we're all wired and Mm. so I think there is a primary question for me which is how do we each find our place in the world what is a happy life and how do we then work together to build healthier companies institutions societies so I think I've become very interested in how a diversity of views and backgrounds creates and new things creates innovation and that's something we've benefited from as a company in OxyHealth and I think across the healthcare ecosystem how you bring all those stakeholders together so I think the creativity from difference and then how you build something together how you collaborate to build something that that makes life a little bit better and helps us all get along our journey Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that's the theme probably um, of my career because I mean if you we could go round it a bit but I effectively took that 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 question into a law degree which is really the law is about how you try to reconcile these competing dreams and fears that we have in society. Um, I, I don't know if I was the only person on the course who had no intention of practicing the law as a lawyer, <laughs> but I certainly didn't. Um, okay. And I think then it was a question that business gives you a chance to try and create stuff quickly and mm-hmm. with people and try things out. And frankly, at 21, it was also about adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I became a strategy consultant. I helped write a book called The Secrets of CEOs, where... Yeah. 100 of top CEOs helped us on how they lead. And I turned that into a, a startup consulting business with a partner um, mm-hmm. when I, in my mid-20s. And that took me all over the world. And I think, again, it's funny that I ended up working in the Sahara Desert in Mauritania, in the Alps in Peru, um, out in Australia. China, we had an office in China we started. So we're between London, China, and, and these far-flung places, as well as working financial businesses in the Channel Islands. Mm-hmm. So again, it was about in these different places, how you um, use what you've got as people to keep a mind open, uh, develop a, a strategy around a transportation business, uh, work in supermarkets. So I became really interested in safety critical industries. So, okay. you know, if you've got a mine, yep. the truth is, you know, I've been on site when someone's died during that operation. Uh, mm. And one's constantly trying to create a good thing, which is to create resources or an airline was trying to move people from A to B. But one's handling mm. these very dangerous risks. Yeah. Um, so how can you create a scaling organization that handles those risks and creates that benefit? Mm. And so after about we, we uh, the business still running, Shingfu is still out there. Steve and the team are doing great things. But I sold out after about six years in my early 30s because I just felt that two things, really, that. I wanted to not advise, but I wanted to help um, craft something and try and create a longer lasting, more enduring impact. One worries sometimes that as an advisor, one's just part along yeah. for part of the journey. And the other thing, frankly, is I wanted to get married, have a child. And I was on a plane a hundred times a year um, over all these time zones. It's a bit, even, even against what I do now, that's a bit challenging. Mm. So I, but I still, just like when I left university, I wanted to start a business. I didn't have a good idea. Yeah. So I was reflecting a, a little bit about, well, what can what brings benefit to people okay healthcare seems like the most pressing need but I'm not a doctor so that's not helping me forward but maybe I could bring this idea of bringing different groups together around safety critical growth yeah um, and and contribute that way and so I found IP group who spin great ideas into great companies 
Yeah. They, they introduced me to Professor Tarasenko, who had the core nugget of IP for OxyHouse. Okay. He joined as commercial director. And then I've been lucky enough to lead the company as chief exec for five years. Well, that's a great journey. Um, so going back to, I know you've, um, the, world, the, the Secrets of CEOs was your book. Mm. And your, it seems like from that period of time, you're consulting, you were working with, you know, I, I would imagine, you know, tens, if not hundreds of very, very high level, very successful CEOs. And now you are a successful CEO in your own right. What, um, what are the lessons or behaviors that you took from speaking to those people and working across those industries, safety, critical industries and, and others, that those behaviors that you have tried to maintain or the behaviors that you consistently saw would deliver success, but with safety? So, um, I mean, I was lucky to help Steve Tappin um, and, and Andy Cave of The Telegraph write that, that book, and they had me along for that, which was brilliant. But um, uh, we did have a wonderful time writing that. So we, we got to meet with um, some of the, the doyens of that era. So uh, John Brown's first interview back in public life from BP, um, McDavis at Extrata, a fabulous example of building a mining business. Um, uh, Terry Leahy over at Tesco. So just a few yeah. um, handling, uh, Carolyn McCall at EasyJet. So some, some very senior people. And I, I, I wouldn't draw a comparison between my own chief exec status and, and those guys. I think that's generous. But, Not yet. But Not a yet. bit generous. That. But thank you. <laughs> all the same. I wouldn't make that link. Um, but it was really interesting because um, we, we kind of dove into these five or six different ways that people seem to cluster around driving financial value, for example, versus mm-hmm. managing an operation tightly. So you have to put, I think, as a chief executive or, and as an organization, you have to put your emphasis about one or two core beliefs and mm-hmm. ways of working that go alongside your strategy. Okay. Uh, and um, so uh, I think in, in OxyHealth, what we've focused on, I think as core beliefs for better or worse, and hopefully these have been the right decisions. Uh, one is helping because we, we don't, you know, there's a great mistake in technology businesses in health, which is the tech mm. suddenly becomes the hero, but well, that's not yep. true, is it? Because the patient needs the support or yep. wants the tools and the clinician is the person who has the expert judgment, the empathetic heart, the skilled hands to go help. So all we can do is help. So I think it's very important to focus on helping clinicians mm-hmm. and helping the teams because I think increasingly in the areas we work is about it's a team game. So helping clinicians and trying to be helpful. Yeah. Um, and I think the other thing is we we our primary value of all our values is learning together because um you know we started out with this nice little bit of insight from an engineering lab and we we're trying to learn how that could help people uh, mm. and how to help people understand what used to make of it so your rate of growth i think in a in a in a in a a modern business is really limited by your ability to learn Mm -hmm. so how quickly can you learn as an organization um defines how quickly you can grow so for me it's about learning together helping clinicians and then um focusing on what really matters being a safe pair of hands Mm -hmm. to the people who are helping save lives and improve healthcare. so i've tried to put for what it's worth at the center of our organization under my stewardship mm. those two core beliefs are where we start from okay. uh, um does, does that make any kind of sense no it makes a huge amount of sense and i think that it's really valuable that you i mean i'm i'm a ceo myself of a of a, of a smaller company than the noxy health but you know we're still we're on our journey and um you know we're also in the health tech space and i completely agree with you that if you you know if you're not able to um elaborate very clearly on the problem that you solve and if the problem that you solve is not central and you end up talking too much about your own technology or putting your technology ahead of what the actual problem is, because the problem by definition will be a problem for somebody. Ergo, you're working for that person to solve that problem for them or, or with them or in collaboration with them using your technology, either as it stands or some adapted version or however ultimately you roll it out. But if you move too far away from what that problem is, you lose sight of how you're helping. And I think that that particularly, if you can't, I mean, I, I do a course um, myself for um, uh, to, to my backgrounds in sales and commercial. So I, I do a course called sales for founders, which is focused at training technical founders in sales skills, which they don't necessarily have come naturally to them. And um, one of the biggest things that the biggest mistakes that we see is like lesson number one is talk about your problem, not your technology, you know, and it sort mm. of goes right to the core of what you were just saying. I, I agree. And I, I think your point about doing things with others, I, I often say to the team, like, imagine you're leading one of the um, healthcare organizations, the hospital trust that we work with. You're bombarded by people with 
useful sounding technology and you know that technology can support the work of your teams Mm. but how do you build trust that you as an expert in your clinical and operational sphere has got a a, a meeting someone with a a similar level of expertise in our case in biomedical engineering and systems engineering people technology data coming together to help the person on the ground deliver the care for that individual in need or at risk and so for me I think it's about and I think healthcare, we do struggle with this. It's about recognizing each other's expertise and strengths and learning to collaborate for mm-hmm. that shared goal. Because yeah. delivery of healthcare is so complex that if you're not yeah. doing it, as you say, with, we're kind of all stuffed, aren't we? Well, I mean, particularly if you're, you're, you're talking about healthcare, health tech within the NHS or within a larger healthcare organization. I mean, it's, it's a completely different ballgame from, from what people might understand as a normal commercial process. Um, just because of the way that it's funded, the way that it's structured, the different stakeholders. So yeah. So um, when you were when you were working, when you were kind of looking to move from consulting into, you know, one of these safety led industries, what was the? Can you and, and you ended up looking at Oxy Health. What was the sort of prevailing health tech scene like at the time? What other things were around? What was interesting you within health at the time? What did you find interesting? Can you remember? Yeah. So um, I was. I remember thinking, well, I, I felt very strongly I wanted to go into a deep IP business um, okay. with intellectual property. I didn't want to. There were lots. There's lots of real, really high quality innovation where we're taking um, you know, telephony or the skills of user centric design to create a great seamless experience that helps people participate more easily in healthcare and mm-hmm. drives tremendous value, particularly in community settings. Yeah. And, and, but I felt that that wasn't really where my passion or skill would lie, that I wanted to do something more enterprise and more deep in original IP and I just find that process fascinating Um, and so I was really it's then what you notice is there's a ton of um, interesting academic work around with with actually increasing amounts I think probably not yet enough um, investment and the and the Woodford um, uh, challenges have been a bit difficult for the life sciences sector but um, particularly but there's there's plenty of cash looking to um, help those ideas but mm. it's so tricky to choose one to find one that is sufficiently developed that you can see just about see where it's going to go yeah um, such that you can help it rather than one that needs to percolate in a lab for another three or four years yeah because the was, world's ready to receive yeah, it because as a non-scientist and as a non-clinician did you need it to be of a certain at a certain point for your value to really come into its own well I mean, I, I, I did for my own purpose, but actually that's the, that's the challenge for everyone. You know, yeah. the academic doesn't want their work to go out too early um, mm-hmm. because it, it may actually get tarnished before it's really robust enough. And the venture capitalist needs the, it to come out early enough that they can fund it at an early stage, but not mm-hmm. so early that it won't work. And I think with OxyHealth, it's been interesting. There was a period where we had this insight around photoplethysmography the way you, the micro blushes of your skin okay. when your heart beats, when your heart beats, your ears are turning red. So right now you're yeah. flashing at me okay. on the video, red, not red, red, not red. Um, but we can't see that because it's outside our, our field of view. But if I put infrared illumination on that, just like in a, a night vision camera, mm-hmm. um, we can signal process and detect those blushes, micro blushes. Okay. Um, same with breathing. Obviously your, your body is moving in time with your chest movement. And so okay. that core insight from Lionel, Professor Tarasenko, who um, until recently was head of engineering at Oxford University okay. and is actually the founding president of the newest Oxford College, Rubin College. Oh, wow. Um, so Lionel, very senior academic, his group at the Institute of Biomedical Engineering had come up with those insights. They pushed them forward. And then it was really, there was a couple of years, I think, where the company was working out, you know, are we going to be handheld? Is there a market for this on a handheld mm. mobile phone? Well, there is, is but it's tiny. Um, yeah you know, cars, we have patents around doing this in driver monitoring, but actually okay. it turns out there are better ways of doing that because you're sat in a seat. So I'm not convinced right. that you really need the camera, um, uh, you know, uh, airplanes, you can imagine. And yeah. Until we settled, it was a process of winnowing into the problem we now solve, which I'm sure we'll discuss later about yeah. single occupancy patient rooms. So right. I think there's always this kind of back and forth between the tech's full potential and the market. Um, and at some point you have to make it a company and do that. And I think I was I hope to think I was quite a big part of that dialogue and, yeah. and then getting this focus. Well, do, you, do you feel like that your background as a strategy consultant helped in that winnowing down process? It sounds like it might have done. So it sounds like almost like a, a nice consulting project, which is we've got this fantastic piece of technology. We need some help to establish what market sector it might be best used in. 
Yeah, I, I think I think a, a number of the skills I learned at the Parthenon Group were super helpful for sure. Absolutely. Okay. And what yeah. when you um, we'll come on to what the, the what the platform does, what the technology does in a second. Just one final question: What was the um, two, well, two questions actually? The first is when you when you saw the technology or had it explained to you for the first time, what was your what was your reaction? Was it like an epiphany or was it more of a slow burn? Oh, I wish that we were we weren't in COVID. I'd bring you, Steve, like ninety five percent, and that's actually pretty much a stat. And I'm not, you know, say, my God, it's magic, right? Because like, I can. Well, you imagine like, we you can see it on the. You put someone in a in a, a demonstration room, um, and then someone just clicks into our interface, and then a heart rate and a breathing rate appears. Yeah, I've seen the videos on the website. It's amazing on the website. Uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, and so, to be honest, I think it is breathtaking the first time you see it, particularly in a right. clinical setting. Uh, okay. You're just plucking this this medically certified reading out of the air. And I, I, I was hooked. Special. Yeah, that is that 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 is pretty special. Um, and at the time, was there was there anything vaguely? There was nothing like this really there was there was there was what was the landscape like for remote monitoring did it really was it even really a, that advanced at this point i don't when 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 you started it, to be honest it still isn't really um steve i think you know what what we find we need uh, in these settings so, so we work where you have a single individual in a room so this is anywhere from the step down ward of a hospital down mm-hmm. to a care home much less clinically acute fire mental health which in the uk is our our, our leading market um uh skilled nursing in america these settings so um where you have a mixture of physiological risk uh you may have a heart condition or multiple comorbidities but you also can have probably some physical risk so Mm -hmm. uh, in the elderly you know the risk of falling over um in psychiatric care can be a risk of self-harm or 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 assault from other patients um depending on the pathway Mm -hmm. um so what we found is that we introduced it, as you said in your intro, a vision-based patient monitoring and management system that allows clinicians to intervene proactively, so mm-hmm. get in ahead of a, an adverse event, but also plan care proactively such that um, you can look at the risk factors, you can look at the positive improvement in condition, and you can plan the care regime. Um, but, but the real insight that we had, and this shows you kind of the journey from the lab to, to, um, to growth, um, we obviously started with the uh, the non-contact photoplasmography, the, the pulse rate, and the non-contact breathing rate. But then you realize, actually, we had started doing them with an optical sensor, a, a digital camera, because that allows you to go contact-free. Yeah. Then you realize, actually, that counterintuitively, you can create more privacy for the patient in the room mm-hmm. by having the optical sensor also occasionally, under very controlled conditions, display a brief clip of that person to mm-hmm. the nurse that's outside the room. Because that means the nurse doesn't have to enter the room, doesn't have to yeah. wake you up. So yeah. suddenly you need pulse and breathing rate and video. Mm-hmm. And we didn't realize that at the outset. We thought you right. just pulse and breathing. But okay. then what you realize is you need movement. You need activity because you want to know, is that person in bed, in the, have room, they in the bathroom? Have they fallen over? Are they getting out of bed? Can I get in there before they fall over? Right. So what we, the, the kind of the journey of the early years was to realize the magic is the combination of those three. Yeah. And once you realize that, that's where we become, became really distinctive. And that's our point of difference is to, to enable vision on demand by a clinician who could otherwise enter the room and only in the facility, pulse and breathing rate, spot check and trends, depending on your geography uh, and um, movement. Okay. Uh, And and that's the unique package. Um, That's, I mean, like I said, we talked about it in the production call. I've I've done, done our research. It sounds like an incredible system. So just briefly, Let's go over the technology because I know that you've thrown out a term there, which I won't try and replicate myself. Um, but I will. I, maybe you could just give a brief overview, just of, of exactly how the technology works, and then yeah. let's go into, if you can, you know, from a patient's perspective, but also from a clinician's perspective, like a you know a walkthrough of, of what the Oxy Health or Oxy Vision mm. system does. So I think it's and and what I guess what I'm really interested in. Well, I, I kind of know the answer because we did this before, but I think what would be very interesting for the listeners is why does privacy matter on a clinical level you know mm. why is it important mm. to a patient or the patients where oxyvision is installed absolutely uh, so what the objective when you introduce the oxy health service the oxyvision technology platform is that the care that clinicians are able to deliver becomes safer the care outcomes become higher quality and the efficiency by which you can achieve those results goes up that those are the three things that we're trying to help um, clinicians achieve 
so what what happens is that we will um, install into let, let's let's take a, a psychiatric um, hospital so an older adult ward a dementia ward um, that each person has their own bedroom and in there we will um, work with the estates team of the hospital to place an optical sensor this is a it's about two centimeters long digital camera it's yeah. off the shelf it's completely generic there's no intelligence in that it's mainly used in self-driving cars and other industrial applications but it just happens to be a good platform to generate the signals um, uh, that we will need to process to mm-hmm. develop the insight so that's placed on the wall uh, with some infrared illumination which allows just allows it to operate day yeah. and night. it's in a housing uh, which means that it can be cleaned and also if a patient um, were uh, sometimes patients can can damage their rooms in some of these settings and that means mm-hmm. that the kit is protected and the patient can't hurt themselves um, that is observing the patient continuously and confidentially so it is hardwired to a server on the ward um, or on the hospital estate it's not yep. going up over the internet it's not going it's not on the cloud it's nowhere it's within the facility no, it's within the facility the processing happens locally our algorithms are hosted on a server within the facility under the control of the clinical team. Mm-hmm. And what, what's happening is light hits that sensor and it's turned into ones and zeros. Mm-hmm. And those ones and zeros can be reconstituted like on this Zoom call as an image. So you yep. put some software that turns it back into colors and movement and sound and so forth. Um, but those ones and zeros can also be processed mathematically because um, as I say, when your ears are flashing red from your um, your heartbeat yeah. that's creating effectively a sine wave you know mm-hmm. a, 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 approximately a sine wave and we can pluck out of the all the other random signals in there because of our proprietary patented technology we can find that that sine wave pluck it out and, and count it and say that is a pulse rate okay that, that is exactly what the contact devices that you see in the gp surgery are doing but they have to be on your skin the they, finger clip the, the finger, clip, finger clip the oximeters yeah they're exactly the oximeters in GPs finger clips are doing exactly the same. They're counting the red blushes. They're doing some maths, but their job is much easier because the random signal is near zero because it's on the skin. Because they're clamped to your skin. Exactly. So yeah. fundamentally, we're a computer vision, but really we're a signal processing um, group okay. where there's random mathematical noise in the room in this binary one and zero. And our maths distills that out and says, OK, that's all noise. That's sunlight. That's Steve moving around. That is Steve's pulse rate. So I understand how the pulse rate you get. For, I can understand from the vasodilation and the, the mm. blushing of the, the micro. What was it called? Micro, micro blushes? Micro blushing. Micro yeah. blushes. Um, but the, is the breathing rate connected to that process as well? Or is it a separate? Yeah, exactly. So the breathing rate is also conceptually it's in, out, in, out. And so you can plot that again as a periodic signal. Okay. Uh, and so, again, you're looking for the characteristics of a periodic signal that aren't light effects or movement effects but again it's a computer vision problem where's the body in the room um where is the breathing rate am i confident it's a breathing rate so we 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 calculate these from still bodies we don't do it when you're walking around so when you're at rest sitting lying some standing so you have the optical sensor it's feeding back through a secured wire um to the processing unit the processor um is um plucking out pulse breathing rate as appropriate um but also movement information and uh, it is then displaying the status of that room on a tablet. It's in the, the staff's hand. And it'll be red, green, amber. Green, they're in room. Red, um, they might have fallen over or they might be stuck in the bathroom. Uh, amber, you told us to let you know if they'd left the room, uh, they've left the room. So you can select as the carer um, exactly what you, you see. Right. You can put basically you can set up your own alert system based on the necessities of that you know, facility or that patient. Correct. Exactly. Right. So um, you've got it at a glance for the first time, rather than sort of wandering down the 15 rooms and trying to work out where everyone is. You know what their status is within the room and whether mm-hmm. they're in it. Uh, and as I say, we push then alerts around activity uh, and warnings into the, the work stream audibly and visually. Uh, and you can also. And you can interpret that. We don't, we're not diagnostic. We're just giving you some information. Um, You can also choose to enter into that tablet and take a pulse and breathing rate. That has to be a conscious choice uh, to take a spot check. So you click on the the, the, uh, square that represents that room and it'll say, okay, here's here's a brief, 
here's a live video and it's timed out after 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. And it's really, are they still? Because it, you must be taking from a still body. But okay. it's also implicitly, if, they, if the clinician sees something that worries them, they're gone, right? They're, they're in there. They're in there so in there's the- a safety place. check. And this is the privacy point that we were talking about earlier. By um, having that ability to look in, I don't need to come and check you periodically. I can do it remotely without waking yeah. you up. And I can see in the dark now. So, so yeah, go on, carry on. So you've clicked in, you've seen they're still, and then you click and if pulse and breathing rate are available, they'll be displayed. Um, and, um, and then you have a sense of their medical status and you visually check them. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's spot checks, it's alerts. And the last bit is reporting because really with the alerts and the spot checks, you're looking for early warning signs just before yeah. someone gets hurt. But the other thing you want to do is risk factors. So for example, um, in the UK, and this is not available under the FDA clearance yet, it will be, we will look into that. We also provide trend data in your pulse and breathing rate. So the clinician can look. And there was a lovely example of this through COVID. We'd often get the feedback, um, you know, this individual was in the room, they appeared fine, but I saw their breathing rate just starting to drift up and they got up to about 28, 25, 26, very high. We uh, submitted them for a COVID test, they had COVID, we were able to isolate wow. them, care for them, or send them to the hospital, bring them back and manage their isolation period. Wow. So it's a brilliant example of the that's risk amazing. factors. You can just see it in the trends, right? Well, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and I, th- I think what's, the, the, you know, we can come onto the, 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 the pathways and the patient pathways and the clinician pathways. The reason why I really love what you guys are doing is it, we talked about this before the show, is that it, it's the problem that you're solving has been up until now largely dealt with with sort of uh, a human solution which is people going in and checking and and poking people and taking measurements or, or not doing it and there being issues and it creates a huge amount of of human workload and and stress within within the system and it's it's a very complicated extremely clever piece of technology that that has created a very simple solution, right? You can't have the, sim- the the solution is so simple because the technology is so is so clever and so advanced, and that's re- what that's what I really like. Why I, I like doing the show. So, what could you just walk us through what the what, what why this really ma- makes a difference to patients and to clinicians? Well, I think uh, I will, Stephen. I think you just touched on it. So you've you've got this thing in the room. It's doing these processes and it's pushing stuff up, but it's also providing these reports that we'll come back to that, that allow you to look at risk factors. So you've got your early warning sign on. Maybe I need to get in. I've got my risk factors as a clinician. But the key thing is, as I said, that key foundation is you're helping clinicians. So this is not telling the clinician what to do. This is giving more insight so the clinician can exercise clinical judgment. The clinician then deploys themselves into that environment if they need to. So they choose their intervention. So this is about providing more insight to clinicians, clinical foresight, so they can intervene. So I think um, if we look at what you see happen on the wards the patient feels reassured because patients in these settings and in care homes that want to be looked after they know they're vulnerable but they also deserve as a human right privacy dignity and independence and and we these individuals want to live in their care home un, un, unobstructed recover within a mental health setting or mobilize and be demedicalized after hospital so it's really important that people feel they're living a full life within whatever facility they're they're in for the short or long term and so being disturbed by people checking you is immediately taking away that sense of normalcy that en- enables you to recover and feel fully human and f- well not fully human that's unfair but to have your full privacy and your sense of dignity respected so the well, first and, thing- and as, as well as you i mean just on a basic level it's going to not you're not going to have a great night's sleep it's also the irony is <laughs> these people need to, we all need to sleep and particularly if you're recovering from any physical or psychological condition exactly so the patient feels reassured they don't get woken up uh, as frequently or risk getting woken up because let's be clear staff try to do these checks very sensitively yeah but then consider you know you're the patient you don't want to get woken up or but you're the staff member have you ever looked through a darkened hatch or darkened door at night and tried to see someone's chest move like well if you've got a child you have right you know you know you're trying to peer into the baby monitor is max breathing yeah that's what it's like and in this could be a life or death situation the stress of that Mm. and knowing that you're not sure when you do the check whether it's okay but then you're not going to be back for 15 60 240 minutes what happens in between so that lack of peace of mind for the staff matches the lack of peace and quiet for the 
patient. And so that's really at the human dynamic you're trying to help with. But if you can then empower with clinical insight they didn't have before, you couldn't get a pulse and breathing rate. With time series data, you can't gather time in bed, time in bathroom. You know, oh, Mr. Miggins is going to the bathroom five times more than normal. Wonder if he has a UTI. You give that data, you're suddenly... Um, helping clinicians use their judgment and their training um, to then intervene only where needed and not to waste time patrolling. And so you give time back, you give reassurance and you give privacy. And that's the real magic when it's working on a ward um, that you can feel the human benefit of that. Yeah. And is it is it true? I I think I read somewhere that you you have patients who will specifically request to go into a room that has oxyvision in in it. Is that is that is that Mm. true? It's a lovely vignette, actually. So um, mostly now we are in every room in a ward or a hospital because, uh, you know, we've, we've become more mature in, in, in how people work with us. But early on, we we perhaps roll out to a few rooms on a, on a ward. And this was actually in a in a secure psychiatric facility with a, an individual who was a, I forget the diagnosis, but I think it was a, a paranoid, uh, a paranoia diagnosis and, and there's schizophrenia. Okay. And uh, what was fascinating is people think, well, if you've got even if you're controlling the date, the video is this is this, you know, people aren't going to be comfortable. And this individual was requesting to be placed in that room, despite having had paranoid episodes that have been quite severe because they felt safer. Right. And they knew they were at risk because they'd had a medical complication. Right. And that's the nub of it. That's the irony that you, by introducing this extra supervision, you actually create more privacy. Okay, I think that's amazing. And yeah. so what, um, what, what do the um, nurses and clinicians and staff members on the ground, what's their view of, of, of the system and what's their reaction to it? I mean, the, the fa- my favorite piece of feedback that's in a, a published um, a white paper with, with one of our NHS partners is uh, we think of it as the sixth member of staff on our night shift. Right. Uh, people find it, it gives them that peace of mind that gives them that extra bandwidth um, that they'd get from having a, an extra teammate. And so we want the Oxyvision to feel like a teammate, uh, a, a very narrow, can't replace you teammate, but a teammate nevertheless. Yeah. And was there, were, were these staff members suffering from severe amounts of stress? Because I can imagine that, that, that working those night shifts with vulnerable patients of, of any kind and, and not be, and, and be sort of, like you said, having to do rounds once every 120 minutes, 240 minutes, whatever it is, that might be quite stressful because you don't know what's going to happen as soon as you leave the room. Yeah, so I, look, I think uh, our clinicians find their jobs really satisfying and stimulating and, and get a great deal from them. Um, but the, the, the statistics in the NHS from 2019, which year before COVID, is that 38% of nurses had at least one day off through work-related stress. The right. sheer workload and the delivering of this very conscientious objective is, is tremendously hard for the clinical staff that we work with. And I have a huge respect for that. Well, I mean, anything that can help with that, it's got to be a good thing. So um, what if, if, if they're not using Oxyvision, what is being used, if, if anything? Like what, what's the comparison currently? So in, um, in, uh, in the inpatient mental health setting, there really isn't uh, much technology around. Um, there have been some attempts to use um, door sensors to detect ligatures on the door itself. If, if someone okay. sadly is trying to um, hang themselves off a door uh, but pretty much otherwise everything else is kind of a self-harm risk in most of the pathways there have okay. been some bed mats to try and decide if someone's in bed or not but it's been really quite difficult to equip those pathways with technology that's where the contact free out of reach um, supportive um, assistance of oxyvision is so useful in the the other end of the spectrum much less acute uh, is um, you know the care home, and and I think Sweden's probably the most advanced um, system there. And what you're seeing there is super interesting. So they they they've had for in contrast to UK care homes, there's, there's a budget. Every Swedish care home has a budget called wel- for welfare technology, which is something oh, wow. that is not true in in UK care homes or indeed in most places. So that's oh. where they're ahead of us. They've, they've they- noticed the power of technology they, they've been a, there is a there's a portion of every swedish care home budget that's designed to invest in for technology, technology. correct wow. yeah yeah and uh, most care homes in sweden are municipal uh, okay. and they, they have those about one hundred ten thousand of them so but and that budget has been deployed historically against what they now call conventional welfare technologies so um that is a, a suite of bed mats and door sensors that are trying to give you the activity portion of what i described earlier yeah uh, and what the industry has realized over the last 
really in the last three years is that um, the, those technologies, although well-intentioned, have typically been put together by security firms because it's basically your intruder alerts repurposed to treat the patient as the intruder, which is yep. bizarre, but, but sensible. And what's happened is they have not been clinically attuned to the risk factors and they've created a lot of excess alerting and not, they've just created alerts rather than clinical insight. So it's not clinical foresight, it's workload. So actually, carers in Sweden self-describe as alert responders rather than carers, which is a completely to reverse the technologies. In that's the- really so. That's really interesting. That interesting. That's that's really interesting. So, like you say, well-intentioned, obviously, mm. um, but as opposed to what Oxyvision does, which provides data in effect that people can use to make 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 a judgment on and exactly. And it's a supportive element that they can dip in and out of. They can refer to, there are alerts, but the other things are, are purely alert based, which is, you know, over, overstimulating those, those alerts are sort of false positive, so to speak. Is that? Yeah. The- well, y- yes. So, so you can describe it in two ways. So what we can describe it as is the false positive rate. So that's technically what's going on. If only they were, but actually you've got to think about it slightly differently. What, what those do is they create reactive care. So it was, what can I tell you about that you can react to and right. you will typically arrive late and find there's a problem that mm-hmm. what you've got to do is create proactive care. So you have to have some sense of the clinical risk factors and early warning signs. Yep. So you're creating an, a rich insight into, from which the clinician draws their clinical foresight and um you know a good example of that is there's a lot of innovation in this space um around the world to try and serve the elderly population in care homes and what people normally try to do is say well falls is a a massive driver of harm and cost Mm -hmm. so let's detect if someone has fallen over well we can do that we've just actually we just rolled out a a beta software to do that because Mm -hmm. it's so commonly thought about that we thought we better cover it off but in reality that isn't what you want to do what you want to do is detect if someone is about to fall over and stop it because they've hurt themselves by the time they fall over so this is this reactive fallacy and i think what had happened in sweden and you're seeing it in some of the care home markets around the world is people are interested in creating looking at a technology saying oh it'll give me an alert i'll put that in and then there'll be more information in the system that'll be good rather than what are the risk factors and early warning signs for this clinical group be they be it just old age or be it dementia or whatever and therefore what can i give that is that enables clinical foresight to head them off so yeah. i don't have harm and i don't have suffering i don't have I, I think it's that clinical foresight piece, piece yeah you know that you guys have really brought together with all the whole package of all of the different elements but i think like that 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 makes that that means that you are like you say a trusted extra worker extra teammate you know you're not trying to you're not you're not at the reactive end when something has happened and you're you know the panic bells rung and someone has to run over to the room and fix something it's genuinely in that proactive element which i think makes a huge amount of sense that's the nub of it proactive through giving clinical foresight to the experts on the ground so, uh, and enabling that care so you mentioned Sweden a few times. Was mm. there a particular connection to Sweden? I mean, why, why, you know, I know it's UK based and then you went UK Sweden, but was why, why Sweden and not another European country out of interest? Uh, simply because the, um, the Swedish care home market is so far advanced in its use of technology that oh, wow. we felt that um, well, nowhere else would you find a budget like they have. Um, okay. and so we felt that although it was crowded and we felt had been miseducated by the existing players in the way I've described, we felt we could help. We also felt we'd see um, what other people were doing um, in the care home space there better than we'd see in the UK or, or, or in Germany, for example. Okay. And what's, is, I don't actually know the Swedish healthcare system. Is it more similar to the NHS or is it more of a privatized model? So the, um, the, uh, the care home um, market is almost entirely publicly funded, interestingly, wow. uh, which is, um, so it's a slight contrast to the UK. Mm, that's really interesting. Mm. And, it, but, and, and they're technologically more advanced. They have to, They've deployed more technology from this first generation. And there's, there's currently a, um, a generational shift from generation one to generation two. And, and so we're really engaging with people to try and illustrate that the OxyVision, the vision-based patient monitoring and management approach is the way to, to, to get rid of some of the disbenefits of the first generation. Yeah, I, I mean, I would imagine that they're fairly open to that discussion. Um, yeah, we're we're talking they're... to a great number of people over there. Yeah, I, I, I could well we're imagine. We're a number of care homes out already. I would imagine. And um, so do you have any specific case studies? I know we talked about this before, but do you have any specific Mm -hmm. case studies that around the real world benefits, either to the patients or clinicians or even cost savings to the healthcare organizations that you work with? Um, 
so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I wondered if there were a couple of um, a couple of stories that I could could share to illustrate. Um, uh, well, let me give you just a couple of statistics and then try to bring a few of these bits of functionality to life. So, so I think um, the the benefit to the healthcare provider of of rolling out OxyVisions. Um, let's take older adults, so be it care home or dementia care, um, we've seen and documented in a, with our partners at Coventry and Warwickshire NHS Partnership Trust um, in a dementia unit there and a secure older adult facility, um, a 48% reduction in falls. Wow. By de- deploying OxyVision over a two-year study, which is now not only um, published by us in Coventry, but it's going to be published in the Journal of Patient Safety, peer-reviewed. Wow. 48% reduction 48%. OxyVision. Yeah. And, and what that means is obviously a, tr- um, a dramatic reduction in, in suffering. Um, but then at the economic level you, you, um, the, and the staffing level, that led to a 71% reduction in enhanced observation. So someone falls over. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know they hit the head or you don't know whether they might have done, they either need to go to the accident and emergency room or they need to be supervised one-to-one for a period. It's called enhanced observation. Um, how long is that period of time normally? It varies, 12 to 24 hours. Okay, so it's a significant it's a length of time. period of time. Um, and so by um, reducing falls, you don't need that. But also, if, we, if you couldn't get in in time, so the alert goes off, but you still don't get there in time, mm-hmm. you can play back that video very briefly, actually blurred. So it's, oh, it's wow. anonymized. And you can see whether uh, uh, someone hit their head. Or whether oh, they can yeah. just be helped back into bed, and just think what that it does for the patient uh, in terms of experience. Well, and, and, yeah, and, and also and for the like, staff. Well, and also, you know, that patient may have known that they didn't hit their head, but in that dialogue between the clinician and that patient, the clinician might just say, "Well, look, I don't know whether you did or you didn't, and I have no way to verify. So I'm really sorry, but you, you, you know, we have to take the action." And that might be quite frustrating for that person to then have to go in enhanced observation or. A and E or whatever, yeah. and they say, "Look, I'm telling you now, right now I, didn't, I didn't hit my head." Okay. I, I mean, you can imagine all of these circumstances, can't you? So, yeah. so I think that the, the the and what then happens, of course, is you can't staff your wards. Um, you staff to the level you need for normal operation, but if that happens, you suddenly don't have enough people, so you have to bring in agency or bank staff. Yeah. Uh, and so, the 71 percent reduction in, in enhanced observation because it's not needed mm. um, is, is a time saving and a cost saving a direct cashable nhs spend saving in addition to better for the patient and the staff so that's a really glorious example a really yeah. magical example of the kind of phenomenon we see a lot but the other thing is you, you know it saves the ambulance trust and the acute hospital because that's a 68 percent reduction in visits to the emergency room wow you don't need wow. to, from that user group from that group of from patients. that study that 48 percent reduction is linked to those two direct effects 71 percent reduction on on-site and 68% reduction of, of paramedic attendance or ambulance. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that cool? That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, that we're, uh, be, be honest, were you internally, were you expecting the results to be that significant or would you, were you, are they even beyond the impact that you thought you were having or was that in line with where you thought you were? I mean, I mean, we were delighted with them, um, but I, I don't think we were that surprised because we, you, you know, the, the amount that enhanced observation takes, the effort the staff have to put into that and the difficulty of filling those roles at short notice above their normal complement. And um, yes, you have to be very cautious so that that's the thing these individuals, be they in the psychiatric population or the elderly population, these patients groups need a lot of support. We have to be very careful with them. It's yeah. the same reason that when Max had a seizure last week, we got an ambulance out, you know, he's fine, but you know, these are delicate people who need support. So um yeah, so that that's I think that's a good in the in the the other moving examples are um self harm. So actually, we're thinking about Tamsin. Tamsin isn't the patient's name, but I'm trying to remember the lady. I think it's a lady. Yeah. So this is uh, Susie's the nurse, and that is her name, Susie Bruton. But um, <clears throat> uh, Susie, they illustrate quite well in effect. So um, Tamsin was in the common areas of an inpatient psychiatric ward. I, I forget her um her. She had a, has a personality dis- di- disorder diagnosis and, and was known as a risk of self-harm and also been known from her previous time in, 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 in treatment that she had episodes of aggressive behavior. So Tamsin clearly has some complex needs. Sure. 
she's in a, um, a, a locked um, psychiatric facility for treatment and care. Um, and Susie notices that she's left the common area and gone back to her bedroom. And it's a great example. Where there was a bit of clinical intuition here because Tamsin wasn't due an extra check. She'd just been supervised. But just Susie just kind of wondered. She thought, I know. Well, I won't go into the room where there's a risk of aggression. I could provoke something unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. But if I use the OxyVision vital signs, I could take a spot check and just check if that's always okay. She went into that workflow I described earlier, looked into the room, mm. and she could see Tamsin. And Tamsin, even before we get advice, is lying on the floor with a ligature around her neck, stationless, stationary. Wow. So Susie grabs a ligature knife, gets in the room, cuts the ligature, Tamsin survives the episode. And um, I don't want to misquote um, this. Looking back, I'm relieved I checked on her using the system. If I'd waited until her next observation, Tamsin might not have been here today. Wow. I mean, that's, that's pretty... Yeah, I mean, that speaks for itself, really, doesn't it? Yeah, That's, yeah. And yeah. so... I mean, it, both of those yeah. examples, I think, indicate the value of what you're, you're doing from, on, on a really human level. Um, you know, and I, I, I think it's incredible. I also think, I know that we just, you know, compared to that, it seems a bit silly to talk about pounds and pence. But just to go back to the, the bit you said around the direct cash savings to the NHS, just for everyone listening... When, when you're trying to engage with the NHS and, and sell your services or product to the NHS, what, one of the ways that, to do that is to talk about cash savings. Mm. Another, the, the, the holy grail of cash savings is a direct release within the same year, i.e. Mm. it's an immediate cash savings. What often happens is you have systems that say, no, look, you pay me for this now, but in five years time, you know, it'll pay itself off and then, then you'll get the benefit. But what you're saying right now is by reducing the enhanced observation by 71%, you are actually able to have a direct cost saving to that trust in the same year immediately, which is, which is amazing. Yes. And, and the health economics are really important. And, and you know, because you're, you're a, a startup healthcare CEO yourself, um, it, it, it's complex, isn't it? So we're actually working with the York Health Economic Consortium, who you'll, you'll know are one of the UK's mm. leading health economics groups. And I'm kind of itching for this to be published. And it hasn't been yet, Steve. So I'm sorry, it would have been <laughs> a bit of a scoop. Any in- um, well, we, we, they, they're doing, uh, they're looking at acute psychiatric intensive care in older adults. And I am allowed to say that the work, the research will show that the system can reduce costs and make cash releasable savings. Um, I'm pretty excited about when the detail comes out, but we, we've done the work. Um, our customers, we're, we're in 40% of English mental health trusts, mm-hmm. um, 5% of the UK's mental health beds, because we can work with our customers to build a, um, a, a re- return on investment model that yeah. gives them the confidence to trust the system with their economic outcomes as well as their safety and quality enhancements. So York Health Economics, I hope, are going to be publishing with us shortly and will provide a, an external quantification of that. But we know that's true and, and we, we see that with yeah. our customers. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it's going to come out and be very, very positive. So um, you've mentioned the US as well. What are your plans to, to, to expand or, or what are you doing in, in the United States? Yeah, so uh, we um, we obtained uh, so the pulse and breathing rate elements, the modules that sit with OxyVision is not in itself a medical device, but within that software system there are um, software medical devices, the pulse and breathing rate modules mm-hmm. um, for spot checking, and in Europe for vital sign trending. Uh, in the US, um, we've just completed uh, and been awarded our US classification as a class two medical device for spot checks for right. pulse rate and breathing rate measured by chest wall movement. And uh, that is a de novo. So that means that there's nothing. on. So when I said this is unique, I could be completely confident in America because we had to create an entirely new category of medical device for our system. So we got that in March, which is a, to be honest, a bit of a coup for UK science. Um, So again, I don't know of the people listening that when you go to the, when you try and get a medical device regulated in the US, you know, you've got broadly speaking two routes. One is that you say my device is a little, is similar to this. So regulate me like this and you, I can, I'll, I'll launch under the same conditions that this other thing has already launched. If you have something truly unique, you can't do that, obviously, and you have to ask for a de novo, but that gives you a huge amount of prestige and also an element of protection because the FDA, which is the regulatory body there, is guaranteeing that you are the only thing like that on the market. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. That's a fair, exact summary. And it means that others have to show that they're as performant as your device to then 
qualify in that category. So we created a medical device category in the States. And so Robert uh, McCaller, our, our VP for America, is out there now talking about 2025 healthcare organizations in skilled nursing, which has the dementia and some of the psychiatric needs in it, okay. uh, with a view to rolling out the OxyVision service around safer, high quality, more efficient care. So super excited to take this opportunity to the patients and staff in, in, in US care, initially in skilled nursing and later in behavioral health, uh, which is what the, the Americans call mental health, okay. and, um, and in, in the uh, care homes, the assisted living, as the Americans call it. And are the challenges there the, the same or are they different? Or, they, or, or what differences are there that, that you've noticed? So um, the economics are different. It's, it's okay. obviously, well, not, it's, 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 it's a, an insurance, um, mainly insurance funded, although skilled nursing is partly government funded through Medicare, Obama's um, okay. regime. Um, so the economics of the facilities and the reasons, how, the way they calculate return on investment is radically different from the UK. Okay. That's the nub of it. So what we're going to offer them and provide for them is as compelling and the same clinical outcomes are relevant and needed and drive efficiency. Um, but there's also a profit motive in the US system that we've not got in the UK system mm. or indeed in the Swedish care home system, uh, which is changes slightly how we position the sale. Right. But the raw benefit clinically, operationally and financially is actually the same. Right. That makes sense. And I know that you you've mentioned it a few times. And obviously, I know from from talking before the, um, the cl- demonstrating clinical effectiveness um, or evidence generation for you as an organization has always been a very strategic element or a key element of, of, of the company. Was that something that you decided to pursue early on as a I know that all healthcare health tech companies have to have evidence generation at their core. But it feels like from from interacting with you guys is that you've gone above and beyond what, what, what would be the minimum requirement and have made it a real strategic focus. Yeah, I think it's strategic. I think it's values-based. So we came out of the Institute of Biomedical Engineering at Oxford, which is designed to take engineering and match it to clinical need and create breakthrough technology. Mm-hmm. And so Professor Lionel Tarasenko, our founder, put a, academic rigor at the heart of what we do. So our head of research and director of our OxyHealth Clinical Research Forum, Dr. Oliver Gibson, was Lionel's right-hand man at the IBME. Uh, and so is right from the start in developing the technology and validating it, there's been academic rigor. And then what we found is that we could keep that clinical academic engineering rigor, but we needed then to add what we call the Insights and Benefits Realization Team, who produce the white papers that you see on our website and do the return on investment work with our customers because people need to translate that pure academic, really rigorous bit into the business case that they need to support their clinicians. And so we have both, and and that's crucial to giving people the confidence to underpin their standard of care with OxyVision. And do you think that that's particularly critical because you are or were or are, by definition, a, a new technology that did not exist before? We're, and it's a new industry. So we wrote the paper. There's a paper called Vision-Based Patient Monitoring and Management that Lana, Oliver and I wrote. You know, we've created the concept of this category to try to support this very specific thorny problem that people mm. have crack, tried to crack and failed. So it's beholden on us to try to explain very clearly the help we're offering and the benefit of, a, of, of you know, working with us. In, the, in English mental health, it doesn't look like a risk now because so many people are doing it. Mm. U.S. skilled nursing, people need to have the confidence that we've really got this problem and that we can deliver these extraordinarily exciting promises that we're making them. And so that's why academic white, white papers, um, academic papers, white papers, and, and conceptual understanding of what we're doing around risk factors is really important. We, we owe that to our partners. Makes total sense. So we've got one or two more minutes. So I want to ask one more question and then we'll wrap up, which is what are the one or two things, the, the big, most exciting things that, that OxyHealth has coming up in the next 12 months? Oh, wow. In two minutes. Like, well, we've got loads of exciting things. So no. So I think um, I, I'm, I'm just excited to help everyone who's is investing with us get the benefit of oxyvision so just doing business as usual in our existing customers and those who are coming to us and saying i'd like what those those trusts have please it's just super exciting because the patient and staff benefit is so meaningful we love to hear the stories back see the research paper come back to prove again and again that we're helping human beings um uh, help other human beings so that that's really exciting i have to say um America is exciting in the true sense in that it's the graveyard of British tech companies, but it's also the chance to to have even more impact and to really shape 
best practice over there. So that's super exciting. Yeah. And then what the um, clinical research forum, the Oxy Health Clinical Research Forum are doing with people like Professor Polkey, Professor Geddes, Professor Cipriani in looking to create new biomarkers that explain the risk factors and early warning signs and allow even earlier intervention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and, and um, uh, uh, and Professor Brindlecombe. Um, so that, that professorial group that we're working with to create new biomarkers um, is, is hugely exciting because that's where we'll get the breakthroughs for, for the patients and the staff two years from now. So it's those three things, I think. The right. geographic expansion, UK, uh, US and Sweden, the doing our jobs and the research forum. Perfect. Well, look, on that note, Hugh, thank you very much. Hugh Lloyd-Dukes from Oxy Health. I wish you all the best. Thank you for coming on the show and thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you, Steve. Look